Let's pray together before we go to the word. Our Father, we are thankful to you for this weekend, for the time that we already had in your word, for the truths that you have reminded us of, and for the reality that we are united to you, and you're united to us. And because of that, we are united to one another, and we ought to live a certain way in light of that reality. Lord, as we come to this passage of scripture this morning, we need your grace to comprehend the words that Jesus prayed in this prayer. I pray that you would burn these words into our minds and our hearts, that as we walk from here, we would consider that how we live and how we walk has an impact not only on ourselves, not only on our relationship with you, but also on the watching world. You left us here for a reason. You've given us mission to accomplish and how we live with one another will either aid that mission or will cause people to stumble. I pray that you would grant myself wisdom to take us through this amazing passage of scripture for your glory and our edification. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17. This morning, I want to bring you a message entitled Unity and the spread of the gospel. We recline at a large table that Friday night, all wondering if this was the end. It certainly seemed like it was. It was 12 of us, 12 men along with Jesus, 12 men that were not supposed to be together. My journey with these men began about three years ago. That moment, that afternoon is forever etched into my mind. It was a typical day at work. And by typical day, I mean that I was alone. Alone in my booth, my tax booth. No one came in unless they had to. In fact, people as they were approaching my booth would often cross the street and go on the other side casting long looks my way and murmuring to themselves, a traitor, an enemy. But that afternoon, Jesus was passing my booth. And it seemed as if he was coming directly to me, and he was. He came in and he simply said, follow me. Now that moment, I knew that this was my chance to leave behind my old life. That evening, Jesus was at my house. We had a party. I mean, all my friends, the rebels, the sinners, the tax collectors like me all gathered together. And through the sound of music and dancing, you can only hear the scribes and Pharisees outside of my gate looking in and murmuring and saying, he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners. And that was then. But now everything was different. We said in this room around this large table. The breeze casually swayed the curtains and the aroma of roasted lamb filled the room and bitter herbs on the table were indicative of how we felt that night. All of us knew that this was not just another supper. All of us knew that this was not just another celebration. This was a different night. As we walked into this room earlier that evening, 
There were no slaves to serve us. No one even to wash our feet. We walked in and there was a pitcher of water with the basin and the towel prepared, but none of us dared to touch it. I mean, how could we? I mean, we're not, we're not going to do this menial task of washing someone's feet. Besides, was I going to wash the feet of these guys here? I mean, if, to be frank with you, I, I'm not a fan of some of them. I mean, take, for example, Simon the Zealot sitting right next to me. Simon the Zealot, revolutionary, terrorist. Do you think I forgot their bloody daggers and their violence against us because we were traitors? And I was going to wash his feet? What about James and John sitting right next to Jesus? I was going to wash their feet after what they did this week? I mean, they got their mom to come to Jesus and ask, them, ask him if the one could sit on his right and on his left in his kingdom. I mean, like, as if that's their spots. As if, I mean, I'm not supposed to be there. And I was going to go wash their feet. And I don't have to tell you the story about... As we were traveling down to Jerusalem, they wanted to bring fire down from heaven and burn the entire village because they didn't receive us. I was going to wash their feet. And then there's Peter. Peter. Fisherman. Always talking. Always right. And what about Judas? Sitting in the corner as if he's plotting something, holding the money back close to his chest, just so no one steals anything. I was going to wash his feet. No, if I was picking the disciples, I mean, I wouldn't pick some of these guys here. Now, for the last three years, we were together. And the only reason we were together is because Jesus held us. Jesus held us. He called each one of us individually. He trained each one. He cared for us. But as we sat around that table that evening, Jesus looked at us and said, I'm going away. And you will see me no more. In fact, I'm not just going away, but one of you is going to betray me. Another one is going to deny me three times. And by the time this evening is over, all of you are going to run away and disown me. In addition to all of that turmoil in that room, Jesus looked at us and said, listen, the world has hated me and the world is going to hate you. The world persecuted me and the world will persecute you. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take courage. You're going to go into the world and you're going to make me known. Question. With all of these Pressures, both inside that room and from the outside. How is the world going to believe in Jesus? How are these men that are so different? How are these men that have their own problems and conflicts are going to make the name of Jesus known throughout the whole world? Now to answer that question, We're going to be looking specifically at verses 20 through 23 of John chapter 17. Tim read them already, so we're not going to take time for that right now. But these verses are part of a larger prayer that begins in verse 1 and goes all the way through the end of the chapter. There are three sections to this prayer. prayer. 
In verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself and he says, Father, glorify me together with you with the glory which I had before the world was. Beginning in verse 6, he transitions all the way through verse 19. And in those verses, he prays specifically for the 11 of his disciples. These were his immediate concern at that time. And then, starting in verse 20 and going all the way to the end of the chapter, Jesus prays for believers of all time. If you're a believer here today, in John 17, Jesus prayed for you. One of the most encouraging things that someone can do or you can do to somebody and just say, listen, I'm praying for you. Listen, let me tell you, Jesus was praying for you. Not only was Jesus praying for you at that time, in John 17, we have a glimpse of his ministry that has been going on from the time he went to the, he ascended to the father up until this moment, Jesus is praying for his people. Now, our attention will be given specifically to this section and specifically to the four verses, verses 20 through 23. Now, because we're asking the question, how will the world believe in Jesus? We have to highlight the sovereignty of God over salvation. And that is explicitly taught in this prayer. Now, we've talked about unity in this camp. We've talked about our unity with God, our unity with the Father, with the Son, with the Holy Spirit. We've talked about our unity with one another as believers. But as we focus on these verses today, we want to look at a different aspect. Not only how unity affects my relationship with God, not how unity affects my relationship with fellow believers, but how does unity in the church affect those who are outside of the church. That's why in these verses, we are focusing on unity and the spread of the gospel. Now, when we're talking about salvation, when we're talking about people believing the gospel, we always have this sovereignty of God, and then we have human responsibility. Now, people are having a hard time reconciling these two. And it's amazing to see that in this chapter, we have both. We have both that God is absolutely sovereign over those who will believe. And at the same time, Jesus here is praying for those who will believe. He could have said, well, the father determined it's all going to happen. Why pray about it? No, we have Jesus interceding with the father on behalf of those who will believe. Now, like I said, you cannot read John 17 and miss God's sovereignty over salvation. You just simply cannot do that. There is only one category of people who will ever believe. And that category in this chapter is defined by this phrase, those whom the father will give to the son. If you just observe in verse two, in verse two, we have this Jesus saying, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Look at verse six. I have manifested your name to the man whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me. Look at verse nine. I ask on, be uh, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me. Verse 24. 
Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me. Notice, it is those whom the Father has granted to the Son, and these are the only ones who will believe. Now, John 17 is culmination, if you will, of Jesus' ministry. He's going to the cross in John 18. This is the final thing he will say to his disciples before he will go to the garden and pray in the garden. Now, John has been building up in this gospel up to this point. And this is not the first time Jesus uses this phrase. This is not the first time Jesus speaks this way. If you go back in the gospel of John and go to John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, Jesus is teaching crowd. And verse 37 Notice this phrase. He says, all that the father gives me will come to me. Notice the certainty. There is no ifs, buts, hopefully, maybe. No, all that the father gives me will come to me. There are a distinct group of people that the father has prepared for the son. And everyone who is part of that group will come all that the father gives to me. Now, on the other hand, if you skip down to verse 44, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Notice all that the father gives will come and no one can come unless the father draws. And just in case you missed the point, In verse 65, he repeats himself again and he says, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him from the Father. The Father has people for the Son and all of those people in God's sovereignty will come. Another famous passage. Go a couple chapters forward. Go to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. And notice this phrase. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. You see, the church is the bride which the father has prepared for the son. And everyone who is in this group will come. Now, people struggle with the question, well, uh, can I lose my salvation? I think you read this verse and you can ask a different question. Can the father lose those whom he has given to the son? Can the son lose those whom the father has given to him? I think it's emphatic in these verses. The answer is no. No, he says, those whom the father has given to me, they are in my hand. My hand is in the father's hand and they will never, ever perish. Now, we see it as absolute sovereignty. But you might say, well, uh, what about Judas? Judas, one of the 12. I'm glad you asked. If you go back to John chapter 17 and look at verse 12. In John 17, verse 12, Jesus is praying. And in this prayer, he says this, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. I guarded them and not one of them perished. Now, if Jesus would have stopped there, there would be a lot of, you know, controversies like, well, what about Judas? 
But notice that Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, none of them perish, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Judas did not lose his salvation. Judas never had it. The same John who was building on what he had previously said. If you go back to John chapter 6, Jesus spoke about Jesus early on in his ministry. The disciples did not understand it at that time, and they only realized that afterwards. But in John chapter 6, when Jesus was teaching some hard things, a lot of his disciples left. And Jesus is turning to the 12, and he says, hey, verse 67, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I myself not choose you, the 12? And yet, one of you is a devil. Now, John is writing this way later and he has this comment here. He says, now he meant Judas, the son of uh, the Judas, uh, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. Judas did not become a devil. Judas was the devil from the very beginning. The disciples did not realize that at the time, but Jesus told them flat out from the very beginning. I chose 12 of you, yes, and one of you is a devil. Now, you might listen to this and you might read this and you say, well, then it's all said and done. It's all good. The father has the people. The people will definitely come and not one of them will be lost. So let's just pack and go home and hope these people are going to get saved. No, but Jesus doesn't stop there. John 17 doesn't stop there because just because God is sovereign, it does not mean he does not use means. God does determine the ends, but he also determines the means. He says, yes, these people are going to believe. These people are going to be saved, but this is how they're going to be saved. This is how we're going to, going to reach the people whom the father is given to me. As we unpack the verses that are before us, four verses, my proposition to you is this, spiritual unity with God leads to visible unity with the people of God and makes the gospel of God believable. Let me say that again. Spiritual unity with God leads to visible unity with the people of God and makes the gospel of God believable. Let's start first with spiritual unity with God. Now, we won't spend much time here because that's what we've been doing already this entire time. But we see this in our verses, and it's amazing to see how from different passages of Scripture as we preach, the same truth is repeated over and over and over again. And just like Mark mentioned, Jesus is saying his final prayer. This is the final instruction that the disciples were eavesdropping on. Jesus is praying this out loud, and John is recording this for us. And this, this is what Jesus is asking. Look at verse 20. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone. Now, this is the third time in this prayer that we have this I do not ask statement. Now, in verse 9, we have the first one. In verse 9, he says, I do not ask on behalf of the world. Now, that rubs us the wrong way sometimes. What do you mean? Now, Jesus explicitly says in verse 9, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me. Jesus did not pray for all people of all time. 
Jesus prayed for those who believed and for those who will believe. This is not a prayer for everyone who ever existed. Only those whom the Father has given to the Son are the object of the intercession of Jesus in this chapter. Now, the second statement is in verse 19. He says, uh, verse 15, I'm sorry. He says, I do not ask to take them out of the world. Now, now that he's praying for the 11, he says, yes, I know that in the world they will have trouble. In the world, they will have tribulation. People will persecute them. But Father, I'm not praying that as soon as people believe, they'll immediately be taken up to heaven. No, because you've sent me to this world on a mission. And now I am sending these guys on a mission because they have job to do. So I'm not asking that you would immediately take them out of the world. Notice here, he says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world. Either physically take them out of the world. But sometimes even as Christians, we have this tendency to take ourselves out of the world. Well, let's just all pack up, move to Idaho and live in some ranch as Christian. Why? Because we want to isolate ourselves from the world because all these wicked people are out there and we are, you know, sanctified, holy group of people. No, Jesus says, no, these guys are going to live in the world. They're going to interact with the world. Why? Because in the world, there are people who need to come to know me. There are people whom the father has given to the son and they don't yet know me. So that's why I'm saying that they have to be in the world. They're not of the world, but they have to live in the world. Do not take them out. And here in our third statement, I do not ask is in verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Now, this verse, verse 20, is a transition from the previous section that concluded in verse 19. As I said, from verse 6 through verse 19, Jesus was praying for the 11 disciples. Judas was dismissed. They had their last supper. Jesus has given them instruction that are recorded in John chapter 13 through John chapter 16. And now Jesus is praying for the 11 that are present in that room. And now when he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, these are the ones, the 11 that are in the room. But I'm asking you for those who will believe in me. Now notice this word, believe. Believe. Believe is a very important word in the gospel of John. If you were just to read through the gospel and if you want to highlight it, the word believe appears over 90 times in this gospel. In fact, John tells us that the reason why I wrote this gospel in John chapter 20, verse, uh, in John chapter uh, 21, he says, I, have wrote, I wrote this gospel so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The purpose of this gospel is so that the world would believe. Now, Jesus is saying, I am praying for those who will believe. Listen, a disciple is someone who believes. Jesus describes his 11 in verse 8 by saying that for the world which you have given me, I have given, uh, for the words which you have given to me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me. Now notice that the object of their faith is Jesus himself. You become a Christian not by believing a certain sets of truths. You're not subscribing to a system, but you are believing in a person. Because then he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who will believe in me, believe in me. We don't just believe some idea. We don't just believe some concept. We know a person and we believe in a person. And that's why in verse three, Jesus says here, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 
Believing in Jesus Christ is knowing him and having personal relationship with him. And Jesus is saying here, I am not praying for these 11 who are already have believed in me, but for everyone who will believe in me after their words. Now, what exactly is Jesus praying for these guys who will believe? Notice three statements. Verse 21, that they may be one. Verse 22, that they may be one. Verse 23, that they may be perfected in unity. Now, Jesus made a similar statement earlier in verse 11 when he was speaking of the 11 disciples. And he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus is saying that, Father, there will be people in the future who will believe because of the words that these disciples will either speak or write. And I am praying, and my request is that these people may be one, and their unity would be such as I have with you. He says, even as we are one. Now, what exactly does Jesus mean that we are one? Again, this is not a new concept in the Gospel of John. Jesus spoke about this earlier. Go back to John chapter 10. We read this verse earlier, but I want to point something out to you. In John chapter 10, verse 27, again, Jesus is speaking about his sovereignty over salvation and that those whom the father gives to the son, they will all believe and all will come. But notice how the passage concludes. We'll read again verse 27 through 30. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Notice verse 30, I and the Father are one. Now, notice the parallel. The Father gives and I and the Father are one. In John chapter chapter 17, he says, Father, they will believe in me that they may be one even as we are one. Now, what exactly does Jesus mean when he says, I and the Father are one? Now, we can tell what he means by just reading the next few verses. How did people who listened to Jesus at that time take his words? What did they understand? And notice the response. When Jesus says, I and the Father are one, the very next verse says, verse 31 says, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Now, we might think, well, this is odd. Like, what exactly did he say that, you know, you got to stone him now? They stone people for blasphemy in the Old Testament. Now, Jesus says to them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? And this is what Jews explaining to Jesus say, when you say I and the Father are one, this is what you mean. He says, they said, for a good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. So much for Jesus never claimed to be God. Those who listened to him clearly understood that he's claiming to be God. And they wanted to stone him for that. Now notice Jesus doesn't say, guys, I'm, I'm so sorry. Yeah, I misspoke. <laughs> he doesn't correct them. Yes, they understood, they understood perfectly well what he meant. Yes, he is equal with the Father. But we can see here from this context that there are two types of unities we can say. There is unity of essence that Jesus says, yes, I am equal with the Father. I and the Father are one. I am God. That's exactly what Jesus says in this verse. But then notice in verses 27 through 28, he doesn't just talk about his essence, but he's talking about his purposes. He says, my purpose is to get those whom the father has given me to glory. 
And the purpose of the father is exactly the same. He says, I and the father are one. We are in this together. I want to save people and I'm going to get them to the end. The father wants to save people and the father is going to get them to the end. So their purposes are identical. Their motivation is identical. What they want to accomplish is identical. And so in here we can say there is unity of essence. There is unity of purpose. And so when Jesus says, I want believers to be just like you and I, they share the same unity as you and I. Now we know that we are never going to be God. You're never going to be God, but you're going to be like God. Second Peter tells us in chapter one, verse four, that God has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them, you may become partakers of divine nature. Listen, the communicable attributes of God, God shares with us. To be conformed to the image of Christ is to become like Christ in some way. And so when Jesus is praying that I want these guys to be one, even as we are one, there's part of that. But if you go back to our context, when, where Jesus is praying this in John, chapter seven, in John chapter 17, this prayer that Jesus prayed was ultimately answered on the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descended and when the church was born, the spirit has taken the believers that were at that time, they were all baptized into one body and they became one body. Now, every time a person believes, every time person repents, God takes him and places him into the body of Christ. Now, as a believer, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. The Holy Spirit is living in you and you become one with the Trinity. Now, like Mark said, we don't create this unity. You can manufacture this. You can jump through certain hoops to become one with the father. No, the way you become one with the father is to be born again, is to be saved, is to receive the spirit. When this God brings you into fellowship with him by granting you Holy Spirit. Now, this unity is what we all have positionally, whether you want it or not. You are united to God if you are a believer. But notice in our text, we have two different things. He says that they may be one, that they all may be one. But then as you get to verse 23, he says that they may be perfected in unity. There's this ongoing reality. There's this growth and there's this maturity so that they may be mature in unity. We have to grow in that. That spiritual reality that is true of all of us must manifest itself in some way. And as we grow in our Christian walk and become more and more like Christ, we will be conformed to his image. Now notice that this spiritual unity that we have with the father is the result of the work of Christ. Look at verse 22. He says, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them. For what reason? that they may be one. Now, there are many beautiful things in this chapter, but one of the coolest thing in this chapter is this phrase that is repeated again and again and again, you have given me, you have given me, you have given me. We have this thing that the father ministers to the son, the son ministers to the people so that the people could in turn glorify the son and glorify the father. There are at least six things that we have here that the father has given to the son. Look at verse two even as you gave him authority over all flesh. The father has given authority to the son. Not only has he given authority to the son, we already saw this, the father has given people to the son, all whom you have given me. Verse two, verse six, verse nine, verse 24, repeat it again and again and again. The father also has given work to the son. Look at verse four. 
having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. The father has given words to the son that he would pass it on to the people. Verse eight, the words which you have given me, I have given to them. The father has given a name to the son. Look at verse 11, the name which you have given me. And I repeated the same idea in verse 12. Finally, in our verse, the father has given glory to the son. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. You see what the father does for the son is what the son does for the believers. Notice this, he says here, I have given glory to them that they may be one. Now think about how the gospel of John begins. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. The word was God. He concludes that introduction by saying that no one has seen God at any time. You can't see God. And yet in verse 14, he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his what? Glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the father. Now, you can't see God, but you can't see Jesus. You can have fellowship with Jesus. And by looking at Jesus, you can see God here. Notice there's another reference in verse 24. In verse 24, looking towards the future, towards glorification, Jesus is saying, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. Jesus is going to be glorified by the Father for the work that he has accomplished here on earth. And he says, I want all those whom you have given to me, that they would be with me in glory so that they may behold the glory that I have. Now, yes, we have spiritual unity with God. And the spiritual unity is being perfected as we are being conformed to the image of Christ. The spirit of God conforms our mind to the mind of Christ. He conforms our affections to the affections of Christ. He conforms our wills to the will of Christ. Now, based on everything that we have said so far, we can say that positionally, all of us share this unity with the Father, with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit. But notice that Jesus doesn't just stop there. Again, like we said, he does not say, well, God is sovereign. Great, people are going to get saved. He does not say, well, you guys share this unity. Great. No. That's why I said that the spiritual unity with God, number two, leads to visible unity with the people of God. Notice two phrases in verse 20 and verse 23. Why? I want them to be one for what reason? For what purpose? So that, we have two so that statements, verse 20 and verse 23. So that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 23. So that the world may know that you have sent me and love them. Two purpose statements. So that the world may know and so that the world may believe. Now, if we're talking about our spiritual unity with God, it is not something that you can touch. It is not something that you can see. It is not something that you can feel. Oh yeah, I feel like you guys are united with the Father. No, you cannot perceive spiritual reality with physical eyes. And we're talking about, if we're talking that's, that's the case for the believers, much more it is for unbelievers because we have no ability to see spiritual reality. Remember Philip in that same room? That same night, he turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, uh, show us the Father. That's going to be enough for us. Remember, Jesus looked at him and says, hey, Philip, 
He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You see, you cannot see physical, spiritual reality, but Jesus says, listen, that's why I put on flesh. That's why I became one of you guys, so that as I walked, as I talked, as I lived, you looked at me and you could say, oh, that's what God is like. The same John writing First John, he says, you know, someone might come along and says, listen, I have fellowship with God. I love God. And at the same time, he hates his brother. His claims that he knows God are suspect. Why? Because spiritual reality, which he claims, is not attested in the visible world. You hate your brother. You don't need to tell me about how much you love your God, right? That's what it says. This person is a liar. Why? Because the spiritual claims that you make, they must be backed up by physical facts, visible facts, something that you could see here. That's why we can say based on this one, Jesus says, so that the world may know, we can say that claims about spiritual realities that are not supported by objective facts are suspect. You cannot claim that you know God unless something has changed in your life, unless the world can visibly observe you. Therefore, I say that the spiritual unity with God, it leads to visible unity with the people of God. So that when the world looks at the church, they're not going to see your fellowship with God, but they're going to see how you interact with one another, how we treat one another, how we deal with one another. That is what they're going to see. So it has to, has a, it has to have a visible manifestation in the world. The question, how do you take people that are so different like, let's go back to that room. You have Matthew, the tax collector. You have Simon, the zealot. You have John and you have James. You have all these guys who are not supposed to be together. All these guys who in some cases hate one another. And yet Jesus looks at them and says, guys, if you're going to be one, you're going to take over the world. How do you take these guys that are so different, put them in one room and make them one and then cause the world to believe and that will make the world believe in Christ. Well, first of all, you have to have Holy Spirit. That's why you have this whole section in John chapter 16. Jesus says, guys, I am going away and it is good. It is good because when I leave, I'm going to send the Spirit. I'm going to send the Spirit and the Spirit will indwell each one of you. He won't be physically present with all of you together, but He will be inside of each one of you. And you're going to have the Spirit and the Spirit will produce and change and conform and remind you of the truth that I've been speaking to you earlier. The Spirit works in the lives of believers and takes people that are different and brings them together. The second thing we can say that in order for spiritual unity to be manifested visibly, you need to grow in sanctification. That's why if you go to chapter 17, verse 17, a verse that many of you have memorized, Jesus is praying and he's asking the Father. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is true. This is an ongoing process that these guys who are different, who are taken from the world, the Spirit of God will, according to this verse, through the Word of God, sanctify them, set them apart, make them holy, sanctify them. You see, without sanctification, even believers will act like mere men. A church in Corinth, great example. A church that was full of saints, and yet the world looked at them and says, these guys are nuts. These guys are crazy. Why? 
because you have people who are saved walking like mere men and not walking in sanctification. And that is the reality. And that's why Jesus is praying for these disciples. Lord, I father, I pray that they would grow in sanctification so that they may be one. Now we talked about unity yesterday. Mark talked uh, well about what that actually looks like. But when we think about unity, unity is not uniformity. What do you mean by that? Unity does not mean that we will all look the same now, act the same way, talk the same way. It's not true. In fact, it would be really, really bad if we all will start to look the same and act the same and think the same. Because God did not make us like this. We are all different. We're all made differently. We all have different abilities. We have different talents. We think differently. We reason differently. We explain things differently. We are all different. And our goal here in the church is not to say, hey guys, this is the standard and we got to conform to the standard. Yes, Christ is the standard. We got to be like Christ. But at the same time, you still remain an individual who's made in the image of God. And yet you are different from the other person next to you. And you should not try to be conformed. And you should not try to be, oh, I want to look like this person, talk like this person. No, you're supposed to be different. I mean, we talked about the body. Just think about your own body. Like, look look at your hand. Look at your hand. And hopefully it's different than your leg. And it's a good thing that it's different, isn't it? What if you say, well, you know, in order to have unity in the body, everything has to look like my hand. Face will look like your hand. Your leg will look. No. It's a good thing that it looks different, it acts different, it does different function. And exactly the same way in the body, we are going to look different. We are going to function differently. And that's a good thing. And unity does not mean that we are all, all uniform. Like, let's get uniforms and all dressed together in the same way. Buy graceful t-shirts. Another thing that we can say that unity does not mean we will all even believe the same. Now, you can take scripture. And you can take the truths in scripture and you can say, well, here, in order for us to have unity, we're all going to subscribe to this, this, and this, and this, and this, and this. Now it is true. We can say that we can take all the biblical truths and we can put them like in three categories. First category, category, we can say that there are indispensable truths. By indispensable truth, what I mean is that if you don't believe this, you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. You deny authority of scripture. You deny sufficiency of scripture. You deny Trinity. You deny deity of Jesus, uh, deity of Christ. You deny his humanity. You deny his second coming. You're not a Christian. It doesn't matter what, whatever you call yourself. If you deny these truths, you're not a Christian. Now, in order for us to be, to say that we are one, we all have to subscribe to these things. Why? Because these things are indispensable. This is essence. This is what we hold on to. Believe the gospel. But then as we move further out a little bit, we can say that there are important truths in the Bible, but they're not indispensable. For example, and by the way, before I say that, it's not that these categories are so stark that this one is here, this one is here, and this one's here. No, there is some overlap and some gray, gray areas in between them. So it's really hard to say, well, let's take this doctrine. Where does it fit here? But think about it this way. An indispensable doctrine is something that you cannot not believe and be a Christian. If you deny this, you're out. Then there are some important truths in the Bible. Let's say Calvinism and Arminianism. Is that in the Bible? Yeah. Can you be an Arminian and be saved? Yeah. Now, is that an important truth? 
Of course it's important truth because this will have impact on how you live. So you take important truths and you say that these truths that will alter your direction in your life, they are very, very important. But at the same time, some people might not hold to what you hold to and they still are believers. They might hold on and subscribe to a different set of doctrines and they're still believers because they still believe in the gospel. They still believe in the Trinity. They still believe in the essential things, the indispensable truths, spiritual gift. There are people who vary on this subject and you can say, well, if you believe that prophecy still exists today, I wonder if you're a Christian. No, they just believe and hold to different things. Church government. Oh, you might subscribe to this system. You might subscribe to that one. And you might say, well, this one is more biblical than the other one. But if you hold on to something that we don't hold on to, it does not make you unchristian. And then there are some interesting things in the Bible. Now, these interesting things, like they have no impact on how you live. Absolutely no impact. For example, Genesis chapter six. Genesis chapter six talks about, you know, sons of God went to the daughters of men. Who were the sons of God? Were these guys angels? Or were these guys sons of Seth? Now we can debate here until we're blue in the face and you know, you can line up all your arguments. But you know what? that will have zero impact on you as you walk back to your tent. Zero. It's not going to do anything for you. Now, there are things in the Bible that we can discuss and each one of us can hold positions. Oh, I believe this and you believe that. And that's okay. You can have your arguments and some arguments might be better than the others, but they're just mere interesting things. Some of the things, you know, going to the future, eschatology, some of the future things, oh, we can debate all we want. Is the rapture going to be in the middle or in the beginning or at the end? And we can, again, what impact is, is that going to have on you? Jesus can come anytime. So with these things that are interesting and some of the important things, you can say that, hey, you can hold on and believe differently than I do. And yet we are still together. We don't all have to conform and subscribe to certain things. So as we can say that all believers in the church subscribe to indispensable things, you all have to believe that. In our local church, we will hold to some important things. We're going to say that in our church, we believe this is important. And this is what we teach. Why? Because this will affect how you live. And then there are some things in the Bible that, listen, that's what you believe. Great. If you have your arguments for that, good for you. When we get to glory, we'll figure it out, right? And we don't have to fight. We can hold on to different things and still be one. Now, what if we all, take everything we believe and take everything we know and we elevate it to this position of indispensable. And all of a sudden, anyone who disagrees with anything that I believe is an enemy who needs to be converted. You would come to a church and there is this fighting and bickering and quarreling about every single little thing that ultimately has nothing to do with how you live. I mean, imagine if you are a person who came, for the, who came to this camp for the first time. Everyone doesn't go to this church. <laughs> what if you drove up in camp and as you're driving up that hill, there's a couple of our guys and they're just fighting there and quarreling. You're like, well, that's an introduction to the camp, right? <laughs> you drove in and you get into the kitchen and man, things that are coming out of the kitchen, you don't want to hear that. People are quarreling, backbiting, kicking each other out, fighting. Then you get to the church service and in church service, exactly the same thing. No, I'm going to read today. No, I'm going to preach. No, you sit down because you don't know anything. Right? You went to family games yesterday and you got this mother yelling at her child. You, you never succeeded in anything. You'd be like, well, what's going on here? Well, I don't want to be part of this thing. You would run immediately. But what if you came in 
And like, hey, these people are so different. Different races, different backgrounds, different income. Di di and yet they seem to get along with each other. They seem to kind of like each other. They, they, they do things together. They work together. They serve together. They say, like, what is going on with these people? Now notice the unity that you can observe visibly. It tells you that there is something much more deeper than just the fact that these people get along. That's what I'm saying, that spiritual unity with God, it leads to visible unity with the people of God. And our third thing, that this visible unity with the people of God makes the gospel of God believable. Now think about it. What is the relationship between unity and people believing the gospel? What if we all get in the circle, hold hands and just sing Kumbaya together? Are people going to get saved? No, no. We can all be united and we can all love each other and care for one another. And people are not going to get saved. Look at verse 20 again. In verse 20, when Jesus prays and he says here, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me. And what's the next phrase? Through their word. You see, the only reason why anyone will ever believe is when we open our mouth and begin to speak the gospel. The disciples were to go out and preach the gospel to all creation. Anyone you see, he says, you should open your mouth and speak the gospel. They preached the gospel themselves. They recorded the gospel on the pages of scripture. And people believe because they are exposed to the word. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes from Hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. James 1, 18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. First Peter 1, 23, you have been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring word of God. People will believe because we preach the gospel, because we go out there and we share the truth of God's word. So what is the relationship then with unity and people believing the gospel. Unity makes the gospel of God believable. Why? Because you take people like Simon and you take people like Matthew. You put them together in one room and these two guys now get along. And the world will look at these guys and say, hey, these guys are supposed to hate each other. This guy is a traitor, an enemy. And this guy hates him and he's supposed to kill him. And yet they're sitting here together and sharing the gospel. What happened? What happened? The gospel happened. The gospel happened that these two guys that are so different believe the same gospel. And now the things that were dividing them are removed. We were in the book of Ephesians. Book of Ephesians is all about how God takes Jews and Gentiles and brings them into the church. The, the, the two, group of two groups of people that had wall between them, literally in verse two, he has brought down barrier. He has brought down wall. The Jews would not associate with the Gentiles. The Gentiles hated the Jews. And now you're going to have a church with the Jews and the Gentiles sitting together. And the world will look at them and says, well, these people aren't supposed to be together. Why are they together? They're together because they believe the gospel. The gospel has changed them. And now the spiritual unity that they have with God led to visible unity with the people of God. And it makes the gospel of God, which they preached, believable. Do you believe this? 
Do you believe that if we are one, if we bear with one another, if we love one another, if we have in this church people of all different races, of all different social status, of, all, of everything, you take the major differences and you bring them all in this one room. And then the people from the outside will look in and say, what is going on there? How do these people live? Now, Jesus prayed this prayer. And after he prayed this prayer, he went to the cross and he died. 40 days later, the church was born. 50 days later. And what Jesus prayed was fulfilled in the first generation. If you go to Acts chapter 2, and we'll finish here. In Acts chapter 2, we have a glimpse at the first church. In verse 42, we read, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of the bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling the sense of awe. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together, notice the unity, and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with the gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And notice how many times he stresses they were together. They had one heart. They had one mind. They had one pot where they put everything. They took care of one another. And what was the response of the world? It says they were having favor with the people. And the result? And the Lord was adding to their number day by day. Those who were being saved. Jesus' prayer was answered. Where he says that they may be one. So that the world may believe. Now, do you believe this? In the 21st century, is it possible that if the church is one, if people major on the major, minor on the minors, and get together with one purpose to make the Jesus, the name of Jesus known, is the world going to believe? Well, Jesus always prays according to the will of the Father. The Father always hears prayer of Jesus. And Jesus says that if the church is one, and if their spiritual unity that they have with us becomes visible among them, the world will believe. We have the same God. We have the same gospel. And if we have the same unity, the Lord will save people. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would grant to each one of us this desire to see others get saved. And the way to do that is to first and foremost love you and then love those who are next to us, those who are redeemed by you. We pray that this will become reality in our church. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.